1: Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Caroline Crampton, standing in for your regular host, Helen Lewis, and on this week's podcast, George Eaton and Lucy Fisher discuss the alternate fortunes of Labour and the Lib Dems. NS editor Jason Cowley and Ian Stedman discuss the World Cup in Brazil and whether this could be the last authentic tournament. Philip Morn talks to the novelist Emma McBride, winner of the 2014 Baileys Prize. And Yozushi interviews musician Jerry David DeSeca. George Eaton and Lucy Fisher and we're going to discuss two things we've got in the magazine this week that seem to suggest quite interesting shifts in two different parties. We're going to kick off with Labour. Now Marcus Roberts who I understand used to work for Ed Miliband has written a very interesting piece in the magazine this week about uh, Labour's fortunes. George what does he say?
2: Yes so Marcus who is Deputy General Secretary of the Fabian Society and served as Field Director of Miliband's leadership campaign has written Quite a bold piece saying that based on the number crunching he does, um, he thinks Labour is on course to lose at the moment, the Conservatives will be the largest party, and that they badly need a a change of strategy to avoid that outcome. Um, In particular, he thinks that they need to do more to appeal to uh, what he calls blue-collar voters, so uh, working-class voters who perhaps used to vote Labour, stopped in 2005, 2010, and who are now being picked up by UKIP. He thinks for too long, Labour's been focused on holding on to those who voted for it in 2010 and attracting voters from the Lib Dems and holding on to them. And actually what we're seeing now in some of the marginal seats that Labour has to win, uh, simply to be the largest party, let alone to win a majority, UKIP is eating into its votes. And the concern is that once you get to the general election, and history suggests that there will be a swing back to the Tories, Mm. might not be huge, but there will be some swing back. Uh, then Labour loses those seats and you're left in a position where uh, David Cameron uh, can hope to survive as Prime Minister, uh, as leader of the largest party.
1: And we should be clear that we're, we're talking about largest parties here. We're, we're not in the realm of talking about anyone getting enough of a majority to form a government.
2: No, and Marcus is actually on the optimistic end of the Labour spectrum in the sense that he believes that if they make the necessary changes that they, they can win a majority. And actually, this is a historic opportunity for Labour. Because of the collapse of the Lib Dem vote and because of the living standards crisis, uh, there is space for a radical, bold centre-left offer that could win majority supports um, in a way that people didn't believe there was under, mm-hmm. under new Labour, where Labour is obsessed with, with occupying the centre ground, which in practice meant a position. not far to the left of of a moderate conservative position.
1: And in the wake of the European elections, particularly Lucy, there was a lot of discussion amongst various Labour shadow cabinet ministers and broader uh, outside in the party about whether Labour needs to talk more about immigration as a way of producing this shift and getting more of these blue-collar voters back to them. Uh, Do you think that they do need to talk about it more, less, more detail, less detail? What's your view? I actually think
3: it's, um, it's pointed slightly in the wrong direction to get to centres on the immigration debate. Um, when I went recently to Newark and were talking to people who were traditional, these blue-collar working-class mm. voters who had shifted from Labour to UKIP, immigration did come up, but there was much more sense that Labour, the, the party hierarchy in Parliament didn't reflect them. And I think, in a sense, it's more of an image problem because they are um, touting some fairly radical policies, I think. You know, they're going for market intervention, energy price freezes, they're promising 200,000 affordable homes. You know, these are policies that should appeal mm. to these blue-collar voters. Um, but in fact, we've lost the authenticity in Labour. The the, the shadow cabinet ministers you're talking mm. about, they don't reflect those voters, um, as perhaps they did under New Labour. You know, we had Alan Johnson, David Blunkett um John Prescott, Jack Straw, genuine working class men themselves. Um so I think it's it's an image problem um personified mainly by um or chiefly by Ed Miliband
1: And that's a, as you say, that's a kind of personnel problem even yes. at the top of the party. Yes. Um that's not necessarily something that's fixable in the next year before the general election no, I is, think it? It is um so I suppose it's it's for them it's about making the best of a bad job and trying to turn their their sort of rhetoric and their well, I suppose Marcus is a is a field campaign guy you know he knows um, he knows about getting the vote out and you know turning people's uh, impressions of things so um, he's talking about the kind of technical nudge shift stuff that you see you see on polling data um, but what do you reckon George do we need a kind of big sweeping gesture from Labour to acknowledge this kind of thing
2: No I don't think um, big sweeping gestures gestures work particularly if they're politically motivated or transparently so. What I think you do need is to weave the policies that you do have, and there are a lot and Mm. there are more coming, into a national story that resonates with people in the same way that Nigel Farage's narrative Mm. of loss and abandonment and betrayal does. And it has to be an optimistic offer. Um, One of the good points that John Crudus, the head of the policy review, makes is that Labour always wins big when it has uh, a national story, when it has an optimistic message in nineteen forty five, national renewal after the war in nineteen sixty six, Harold Wilson and the White Heat of Technology, nineteen ninety seven, New Labour, things can only get better. And Miliband needs to find a way to create a sense of a patriotic mission to rebuild mm. Britain after austerity. And that is certainly what um, John Crados and his allies in the party want to see. Uh, they've got a lot of policy coming out now, that, and and the next few months will will be the test of whether they can achieve that.
1: It's that phrase, isn't it? It's requiring that that phrase that you can put yes. into every sentence between now and next May to explain what what it is your story is. Um, it's something that strikes me actually is the the cost of living crisis has obviously been a big discussion for Labour, but every single time a Labour MP brings it up, it sounds negative. Um, mm-hmm. whereas it should sound there is a cost of living crisis and we're going to improve it, we're going to get rid of it. But it just sounds relentlessly negative. Lucy? I, I completely agree with you. Um,
3: and I think one, one problem now um, that's only going to get worse for Labour is the fact that with the economy going from strength to strength, the Tories really have the positive, optimistic narrative in their favour. Mm. As Cameron said yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions, Ed Miliband, you are allergic to good news, um, which of course is, is, is ridiculous in, in, in a sense. But he does bring out the point that any good news, the economy like unemployment coming down to 6.6% is difficult for Labour to to, to, to argue against um, or show how it's they would make it better. To fit um,
1: it into their story, isn't yes, it? Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of bad news, a party that's had a lot of that over the last few years is the Lib Dems. Now, in your column this week, George, uh, you've, you've posited that it might not be quite so bad for the Lib Dems as it appears
2: um, yes, well, they are at a record low today, in fact, uh, 6% in YouGov, in, in which is the lowest figure they've had since that polling company was founded in 2001. Um, and the piece is saying there is a good chance that we are, we'll, are living in an era of hung parliaments, that uh, the next parliament there will be uh, no majority party. And so the hope for the Lib Dems is that they can um, be the coalition partner to the Tories or Labour um, and have influence that way. Um, but the piece is really like, it. must they always be, must they always suffer as a result? Mm. Um, so when David Cameron visited Angela Merkel shortly before the 2010 general election, knowing that he was unlikely to win a majority, he said to her, yeah, What's it like to lead a coalition government? And she said, How the little party always gets smashed. Um, and you know, how prescient was that? Um, so I think the one key change. That the Lib Dems could make looking forward uh, to thrive in coalition is to take ownership of whole departments. So when Clegg and, and the others entered coalition, um, they didn't take on whole departments that, that they, they could then um, be identified with and be identified with the policy achievements um, that came from those. They spread themselves across Whitehall. Mm-hmm. I don't think that approach has worked because it's made it harder for them to define their identity it's meant that the junior ministers, ministers they have have, been, have, look, have looked like helpless hostages of their conservative superiors. Um, so a sensible approach. And there are some in the party um, who agree with this. I mean, Tim Farron has said it would be wise for them to look, to, look at this, uh, would be saying a Lib Dem Labour Coalition, the Lib Dems take housing. We're going to take credit mm-hmm. for a big um, house building programme or they take the Home Office and say, we are going to act as the guardians of civil liberties against those Labour authoritarians. That um, resonates with their activists, and it helps to uh, maintain their identity in the eyes of the public.
1: Because in areas where Lib Dem ministers have managed to own an issue, to use a rather unpleasant <laughs> phrase, um, they have had some cut through. I'm thinking of Lynn Featherstone, particularly in her work on FGM and body image and so on. She is identified mm-hmm. with what has been a positive bit of legislation some uh, some good re-channeling of funding there so I suppose to maximize that at a higher ministerial level is what you're suggesting right yeah um what do you reckon Lucy? where, where are the areas the Lib Dems could could take ownership
3: well I I really agree with you that Lynn Featherstone's done a great job and been recognized for that um and I think George's suggestions certainly would be the best way forward for the Lib Dems but the big uh, the big issue I would see um, facing them and trying to achieve that is, you know, wh- which, you know, which department would the senior um, partner in any coalition concede? Mm. Um, and I don't think they're going to give up any any of the big, um, certainly none of the big offices of state, such as the Home Office, um, Foreign Office or the Treasury. So so then the any achievements that, that could be made would be relatively minor in comparison to... The rest of government that would be in the hands solely by the sounds of it of um, of the senior partner mm.
4: well, I
2: think that's why you have to bargain hard, I, mean, yeah. I think you know, Clegg you know, the, it would have been impossible for the Conservatives to have a majority without the Lib Dems in Germany. You know, Joschka Fischer, the leader of the greens, was the foreign mm. secretary i mean i don't think I think Clegg cut a very bad deal in mm. two thousand ten um and yes, he became deputy or High Minister, and he thought that was wise because he could range across all departments, keep an eye on everything that was going on. I mean, in fact, he just found himself exhausted and overworked because he didn't have the um, forces at his his disposal that the that the prime minister does, and so he's sort of hurriedly taking on an army of special advisers in an attempt to catch up. I, mean, I think if Labour needed the Lib Dems to get over the line, and it was look, give us the Home Office or or, or we're not doing this. I mean, that yeah, they have to they have to bargain harder, and I think everyone says Labour were underprepared, but in some ways the Lib Dems were too, and this was sort of first for them. And I think they were slightly shell-shocked because you'd had Cleggmania, and they ended up losing seats. I mean, next time, I mean, Clegg's already appointed his negotiating team, they've got much more time to prepare, much more time to think about it. Um, we won't be in a state of economic emergency or, or perceived economic emergency. So there won't be, uh, I hope, the frenzy to form a government and within, within a week. So I, I actually think if we do take a more patient approach, Like most European countries do, sometimes you don't have governments for six months. Then, um, then you actually get better outcomes um, for five years.
1: Well, so coalition negotiations to look forward to. Uh, Thanks very much, Lucy and George. The editor of the New Statesman and Ian Stedman, our science writer on the New Statesman website, are here to talk about the World Cup, which kicks off today and is also the cover story in this week's magazine. Jason, you wrote about the World Cup and you said this could be the last World Cup. What did you mean by
4: that? I was having a little bit of fun by saying it's the last World Cup, but what I meant is, is it the last authentic World Cup? Right. I had a good fortune in 2006 when I was working on The Observer on the Sunday paper to cover the World Cup in Germany. So I went from the beginning of the tournament to the end and it was a wonderful experience to be inside that, that country, which at the very beginning of the tournament was very anxious, a sense of nervous self-scrutiny. Germany had hosted big sporting events before, a World Cup in 1974, when the country was divided between the communist East and the West. And also the 1972 Olympics, which were an absolute disaster. They had um, a terrorist attack by Palestinians on the Israelis and the uh, um, Israeli athletes in the in the village. Eleven were kidnapped and murdered. So that was an absolute disaster. And before that, in 1936, when they also hosted the Olympics, it was scarred by Hitler and grotesque Nazi propaganda. So there was great nervousness inside Germany. Germans very understandably, are anxious about um, any displays, ostentatious displays of patriotism. So when I arrived in the country, no one was flying the German flag, for example. And indeed that summer when I left England, you could see the flag of St. George everywhere. There was a great sense of um, optimism about the English team then. But during during the tournament, the five weeks of the tournament, the whole mood in the country changed. And by the end of it, you saw the flag everywhere, the German flag everywhere. But it was relaxed patriotism of a kind that was wonderful. And Merkel, Um, was amazed by the transformation that took place in Germany and the world looked at at the new Germany and the world very much liked what it saw.
1: Mm. So there was a kind of authenticity of the the sporting event coming together with its host nation and so on. And now fast forward to 2014, the World Cup's taking place in Brazil. There's been controversy for over a year now with uh, protests, um, stadium contracts, corruption allegations, uh, allegations about corruption inside the sports governing body FIFA, as well as in the country itself. Um, Ian, is your sense that the World Cup is no longer, as Jason's just described?
5: Yeah, there's this, um, I mean, I often hear people talk about um, how the the football, the World Cup is no longer the best football in the world. And that's kind of been a sense for the past, I don't know, maybe since 1998 or 2002, that, that there's been a real divide as the club side of the game has become more, even more professional, even more scientific. Training methods have become even better. Teams play together so often they become, they, you know, they, there's this language that players pl- uh, learn to speak on the pitch, and then they get dragged apart and put in their national sides and play a couple of friendlies, and it, it's not the same spirit or atmosphere. Um, but there is, I, I guess, this is kind of similar to the Olympics, where pe- there's this sort of platonic ideal of it being a, a sporting event that brings people together, and it's this wonderful thing. Um, And the reality of it, which is a very corporatised, commercialised way for uh, expensive contracts to be handed out to people and corruption allegations. Mm. And and it's become not so much about the sport, but um, just about making money, which people don't want to see.
1: Well, this is it, isn't it? That um, Even if you are wildly excited about the sport, most of the news in the run-up to the World Cup has been about the vast amounts of money Mm. that are mostly going to be leaving brazil that are not going to be staying in the host nation and you know brazil's built stadiums in places where there aren't professional teams to use them and all this kind of thing jason do you think it's actually something a country would seek now to host the world cup
4: yeah i still i still think um you can see why brazil would want to host a world cup football in many ways is a supreme instrument of soft power in the world it's the global game it's the, it's the global language in many ways and Brazil is a great football country, and it's won the World Cup five times, um, and it's right that the tournament is there. But at the same time, as Ian says, there's there's huge, pro- huge problems inside the country, massive unrest, you've had protests, strikes, uh, marches against the World Cup, but also against government incompetence, corruption and indifference. At the same time, this particular tournament is shadowed once again by FIFA corruption. Some excellent allegations in the Sunday Times about how the decision... To host the decision to give the World Cup to Qatar, in particular, in 2022, looks as if it was bought. Um, no surprise there. I mean, one, one knows that uh, mm. um, FIFA, at best, is opaque; mm. um, at worst, is corrupt. And indeed, the decision also to give it to Putin's Russia in 2018 looks deeply murky as well. So this this is the backdrop to this tournament. Every World Cup becomes that much more expensive. I mean, the Brazilians have spent in excess of £10 billion. Still, the stadiums aren't ready. Massive inst- infrastructure projects haven't been completed in time. And this is a country, what, nearly 200 million people, 50 million of whom live in abject pro- poverty.
5: Mm. The this, the kind of the, the viral image of this World Cup so far is um, a piece of graffiti um, where the artist has drawn a crying, starving child sitting at a table with a football on his plate. And that's become the image that sums up all the protests mm. and the riots and and the fury about it. Um, it's, um, I mean, it, 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 I don't know where it goes from here. It, it's kind of after the, I mean, the IOC kind of reformed itself after all the corruption allegations. It was Salt Lake City, yeah. What's you it? mean yeah. the International Olympic Committee? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there were a lot of corruption, which so kind of feels like that was a very similar thing that happened there. That was a very opaque organisation. I mean, it's still not perfect, but um, it did reform itself slightly after what felt like kind of the last straw. And it feels like there is kind of this head of steam building towards um, maybe Blatter resigning. Or, or Yeah, Sepp
4: Blatter, um, president of FIFA, and indeed president's a good word for him because mm. FIFA operates almost like a, like a kind of country or state, has that kind of power. And the World Cup for, um, for FIFA is this huge engine of, well-oiled engine of cash generation. And you can see why some of the members or many of the members of FIFA most of which are from the developing world would want Blatter to remain in power i mean mm. he's that's his power base it's not that it's not the big European countries, and he's generating or his tournament is generating huge revenues where i think i'm that for me this is why I'm calling it the last World Cup because FIFA at present is deeply odious, and it has the partners i.e. putin's Russia and the Gulf autocrats of Qatar that it deserves in my opinion and why should we mm. participate? But where reform could come, and you hinted at it, is the power of the clubs, mm. particularly the big European clubs. And Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the chairman of Bayern Munich in particular, has spoken out already against.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
4: Um, FIFA and Blatter. And um, if reform is to come, mm. it could be forced by the clubs, by Bayern, Juventus, Milan, Barca, yeah. Real Madrid, Manchester United, plus the corporate sponsors. Mm. Five of the six uh, major sponsors of this tournament, led by Sony, have spoken out about the corruption allegations, and they're Mm. very concerned. So if there's change, I don't think it will come from inside FIFA, but it might come from external pressure.
5: This reminds me of um, the Donald Serling thing in America, which um, he owns the LA... Oh, God, I can't remember. I'm not in. I don't know sports. much about America. <laughs> uh, essentially, he he owned um, an LA big sports, uh, uh, big basketball franchise. Uh, he made some very racist remarks, um, and it became a huge story in America. And the thing with um, sort of the basketball authorities over there is that, I mean, they, they weren't going to do anything. They find him a pittance for it. But when the corporate sponsors started pulling yeah, out from absolutely. sponsoring the team, he was mm. forced to sell the team. Um, and I, I, I wonder if that's really the most promising route for reform. I, I think FIFA, that's yeah.
4: where, where the pressure could come. But we ought not to be too gloomy at the same yeah. time. The World Cup starts today in Brazil. <laughs> Brazil play Croatia this evening. Um, we love football.
5: It's like Ian and I love football. I was, it's like Christmas. That was going to be my final <laughs> yeah. question,
1: is given all of that yeah. that we've just discussed, can you still look forward to and enjoy the football you're about yes. to
4: watch? I, I can, Caroline, because I'm a football fan and mm. f- fandom's irrational. It's, mm. sort of, it's about emotions and commitment you make to a club and country in boyhood or girlhood, which you can never break free from if indeed you are a true fan so I think just watching football great football I hope every night um, England are playing against Italy on Saturday is a source of optimism and for many people in the world a source of um, joy and potential unity um, so one is looking forward to the football what happens on the pitch itself mm. one is alarmed by what's happening off the pitch
1: mm. thanks very much Jason and
6: In November 2013, a relatively unknown novelist named Ema McBride won the inaugural Goldsmiths Prize for her debut novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. At the end of the ceremony, she thanked her publisher, the small Norwich-based press, Beggar Press, and she said that small presses would be the saviour of us all because they were publishing far more experimental works than any of the major publishers. I caught up with her earlier this week after it was announced that she had won the 2014... Bailey's Prize for Fiction, to ask her whether this was still the case.
7: I wrote the book in six months, in 2004, 2005, and started to send it out straight away and immediately met with a, a wall of um, incredibly admiring rejection letters, most of which said that, you know, while they, they thought the style was very interesting, subject matter was, you know, well handled and, you know, they, they thought it was a, a great book, they, they couldn't see any particular marketing niche for it and so with regret would have to decline, um, which was pretty soul-destroying. And uh, that went on really for about five years and then I put it in the drawer and decided to get on with my second book um, and really gave up hope that it would be published first and I hope maybe it would be published on the back of the second one. Um, and then my husband and I moved to Norwich. And one day he was in in the bookshop, in the book hive in the centre of Norwich, uh, chatting to, to Henry late behind the counter, who asked what his wife did, and he told him the whole sorry tale. And Henry said, well, that's, you know, very interesting because some friends and I are thinking of setting up a, a press. Do you think she'd let us read it? And uh, so I did. And he really loved it and uh, said, you know, this, this is a great book and, and we'd love to publish it. Uh, but we have no money and we're just about to publish our first book and we're not really sure what we're doing and can we come back to you when we're a bit more sorted out? And I said, fine, and was quite sure I would never hear from them again. Mm. And um, But a year later, they came back and said, okay, we're ready. I uh, still have no money, but we're very enthusiastic. Mm. Will you trust us with the book? And I said, I would. And so they, they published it and it came out just, just under a year ago.
6: And I have that very edition, the black cover, which, you know, i cover. saving that one for eBay. Isn't it? <laughs> um, and um, it's quite astonishing, really, the, the distance between, you know, writing a book in six months and then having a sort of nine year publishing kind of farrago, getting it out. When you return to the book after all that time... Did, you, you know you didn't have any doubts you didn't think this is me 10 years ago you know what I mean how did you feel when you went back to it
7: well you know the first time I read it I, I it had been so long that I I accidentally read the wrong draft and read the first draft and got to the end of it and thought oh my god this is a mess and uh, no wonder no one wanted to publish it and what will I do and then luckily realized that it was the wrong draft and read the right draft um and it was, you know, it was very strange because there was a lot of it that I had completely forgotten. And uh, and so to work on it again, to go through it, you know, for an edit was a really strange experience because I'd obviously been writing a lot in the intervening years. And I, you know, I'd learned a lot as you do when, you know, the more you write, the more you understand about the process. Um, and it was difficult to decide which part of my writer self should be in control of that edit? Should I, you know, continue or try to recreate the spirit of the original? Or should I allow the things that I had learned to maybe creep in and inform how I did this final edit? And in the end, it was it was kind of a mix of mm. the both. And and there are still some things in that book which I feel are unresolved. and And I couldn't solve them then, and I couldn't solve them later. And so I just had to leave them be. But... I think that's part of the beauty of it is there's a a rawness to it and uh, an immediacy to it that maybe if if I had managed to solve every problem it would have polished the life out of it.
6: I remember we were talking about this um, back down at Goldsmiths you talked about um, Finnegan's Wake as kind of being the end of of modernism,
7: Mm.
6: arguably the end of literature, I mean how can you take it any further than Finnegan's Wake and that your project I remember was to step back and maybe forge another path you know and to have gone on, you know, on this path to to get the kind of recognition that a prize like the Bailey's Prize will bring, I mean, what 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 is your what's your sort of hope for this? Clearly, um, people are receptive to the idea.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, and I, I've said this a number of times recently. I think you know, publishers have been hugely underestimating their readers, and and I think you know, there's plenty of room left in modernism for exploration and i think there is an enthusiasm there for writing that takes risks and that asks the reader to make an effort that asks something and and offers something in return for that effort um and you know very very hearteningly the other night at the bailey's prize there was you know a number of of people in publishing who said that they felt it was quite exciting that this book had won because they felt they could go back and dig around in the drawer for the for the books that they had wanted to publish, that they had been told they couldn't.
6: Mm. Do you ever think of yourself in, um, in a position of of exile kind of comparable to Joyce's? Because notably, I mean, you live, you know, in, in Norwich. Um, Joyce was very, very well known for uh, keeping his distance, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and, you know so much of what is in the book and this has been one of the notable sort of uh, factors of reading about um girl is a half on thing is that people are people don't know how to deal with the subject matter because to say you know that there's sort of child abuse and Catholicism and all of these things <laughs> is almost to go yeah we got an I- an Irish novel here is there kind of a a sort of comparable process of uh, of of growing up and moving out you know going on in this book in the same way as in a portrait
7: well you know uh, i think uh, I would have found it very hard to write this book if I had been living in Ireland at the time. And uh, it was always very important to me to try and set the book apart from that social realism tradition of, you know, or Irish miserabilism at large, you know, <laughs> uh, that I really wanted to avoid. And it was important to me to try and set the book you know, although it is grounded very much in Ireland and Irish culture and many of the themes are classic, you know, infamously <laughs> so uh themes of, of Irish life and Irish literature, that you know, that the book would be more outward facing would be an a European novel rather than a an Irish realist novel.
6: Did the did the voice just sort of because the style is so, you know, unique. It's so startling. It's so um, original when when you first sort of encounter it. Did it come out fully formed? Or did you, you know, did you gestate this for years before you actually put sort of pen to paper?
7: No, a lot of it was instinct. Um, But I certainly wrote my way into it. You know, I started off with a, a different idea for the book and started, you know, I and I knew it wasn't going to be written in straight forward language. And I knew that I was that language was certainly going to be part of my my shtick Hmm. and um so i you know i was just kind of writing bashing away with this other idea that wasn't coming to anything and then one day i just came across the opening of a girl as a fun thing and and i knew at that point this this would be something different to what i had been working towards and but i just had to follow it and then you know the the story Grew from that point on because it was, you know, it was completely different to what I'd had in mind. And then the language, I just built the language around the story, so it was there to support the story at all times. You trained as
6: an actor, didn't you? Did that sort of play any? Because voice is so, you know, it's yeah. so essential, and so you will have spent time thinking about the way that you project and so on. Do you think that had an influence?
7: Yeah, I think it had a, had a huge influence. I had, you know, a method school training, which was all about, you know. Getting down into the roots of the character and inside mm. of them, and and making that internal life, you know, visible on stage, and and I think a lot of that st- of the style of a girl is about expressing those ideas through language rather than through physicalisation. Um, you know, just drawing in all these diff- disparate experiences and you know thought and emotion and secondary thought and gut reaction and physical sensation, all of these things happening all at once um, that's you know that's that came from the, that acting background and that approach to creating a character
6: and finally, you mentioned earlier uh, a second book which you'd already started before <laughs> all of this this happened, did you have to sort of put that away and have you picked it up again and what can we expect next?
7: Well, uh, yes, I mean, it's about five years of work uh, on it now and uh, it was, I thought it would be finished this year but it's not going to be finished this year, it will probably be finished next year though um, and I'm I'm starting to get a bit homesick for it, I'm looking forward to getting back to writing it again now, um, once the fuss has died down a bit mm. um, and yeah I wouldn't say more of the same but um but language is still still a preoccupation.
6: Fascinating. Well I can't wait to um see it. Thanks very much for joining us, Emma.
7: Thank you.
8: I'm Yozushi and I'm talking to Jerry David DeChica of the Black Swans. Jerry's just released a solo album, his first uh, called Understanding Land and it's, it's um, a very much a collaborative work which features people like Will Oldham, Kelly Deal of the Breeders and um, the Muscle Shoals organist Spooner Oldham Now was this an album where, where, where collaboration was, was an important part of the process or it, it, did it just turn out this way?
9: Well, I think whenever you're asking, uh, other people to add their voices to something that you're creating, collaboration becomes, becomes, you know, uh, like the, the focus of how successful that it's actually going to be, um, in making a solo record, it did give me the, the opportunity to collaborate in a way that, that I hadn't heard of my songs before, uh, with the Black Swans, all those records are documents really of, of close friends, uh, and in our time together, so they become little musical time capsules of of our time together. With Understanding Land is a solo record, you know, I asked people I knew and admired to add their voice on top of mine. So their instrument became a response to, to what was already recorded. So the collaborative process took a different shape this time. And, you know, and as a songwriter and a record maker and a person, you know, I feel I feel really lucky now to um, have been able to experience both in my music, because you know they're both beautiful ways to create.
8: One of your songs, uh, 29th of June," um, makes an apocalyptic narrative out of uh, the storms that happened in twenty twelve that tore through the Midwest, eventually killing twenty two people and passing through Ohio, where you were based at the time. And you have lyrics like "the sky tore down the town." That reminded me of blues lyrics with Charlie Patton or, or later, you know, Randy Newman singing about the nineteen twenty seven Louisiana flood. How much is this idea of utter destruction and apocalypse
9: um, a part of the American imagination? You know, that song in particular—it's um, very much musically, uh, at least in my acoustic guitar part, and, and lyrically, you know, modeled after the the doom and gloom. Uh, metaphors you might find in country blues. Um, so so Charlie Patton's uh, a really good reference point. Um, uh, it's like you're you're reporting on the weather, but you're you're really talking about your own troubled mind. Um, so and I you know I suppose that's American in some ways. you know, you can still you can still drive down the highway um, and if you pick the right highway on a right day, uh, you you don't see anyone or at least another person for for hours, unless it's a hitchhiker or um, a farmer or something like that. So, you know, maybe that is it's a sense of vulnerability or or maybe it's this idea that, you know, we just don't have as much history in this country. So there's not a sense that uh, that things will last or maybe it's that, that things are more fleeting than they actually are. I've been talking to Jerry David
8: DeChica, um, who's first solo album understanding land is out now um for more information about what jerry's up to go to jerry david
9: dot com and uh jerry is gonna play us a song and i'll leave you with that thanks this song's one from understanding land it's called colors in the sky it's a song kind of about how uh you know we go through life and there's so many hard things to make it tough for us to keep going on but um it's noticing the the small things in life uh, that helps us kind of carry on and carry through.
10: All oh, that do is wait for Consolation to the rain Maybe God is just a scarecrow Some days a farmer in a field of pain And in the dinner I hear the wind blow As the gristmill grinds the grain And I've got sorrows on my table There's no bread on my neighbor's plate Still I see colors in the sky I see colors in I see colors in the sky, don't know why I see colors in the sky Spectrum stopped appearing, and the world remained in gray. Would our next crew tap from staring into a sky of soot and clay? And as the darkness does surround us in the horrors of our days guess I just can't stop leaving in a purple orange green haze still I see colors in the sky I see colors in the sky I see colors in the sky, I don't know why I see colors in the sky I see colors in the sky I see colors